My second reading this morning is uh, from Romans chapter 8. I will read verses 9 through 17. Hear the word of God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You are not slaves, not anymore, that is. You are not a slave to your passions. You are not a slave to your flesh. You are not a slave to sin. You are not a slave to your past. You're not a slave to other people's opinion of you. And you're not a slave to the world's power structures and ideologies. Oh my goodness, how quickly those things grow up. A new one every week, and we take them so seriously, but not anymore, because you are not a slave. Let me give you a little picture of where you stand in the grand scheme of things. Let me point out where you are on the great totem pole of being. At the top is God. If you haven't met him, let me tell you about him. He is very smart. He is very good, he is very powerful, he is very beautiful, and he is very creative. He's so creative, in fact, that he created every single thing that exists out of nothing. He created all of the stuff that you can see and hear and touch and smell. He created all of them out of nothing. He created all of the stuff that science studies, most of which we cannot see. Really small things, really big things. He created them out of nothing. And he created all the things that poets and philosophers talk about. And those are the things which raise mere physical matter into the realm of meaning and value. Things like love and harmony and honor and beauty and fairness and humor and purpose and truth. And yes, Virginia, there really is truth. I know that it doesn't seem that way these days. And I know that there are plenty of people making a frontal assault on truth. But let me reassure you, there really is truth. Truthy truth. 
Absolute truth. Truth with a capital T. Truth that is not just true for me or for my tribe. Truth that is not just culturally relative. Truth that is not merely socially constructed. There is truth which is independent of us. Truth that is not a fabrication of our wills or our brains. Truth that is in and of itself. Truth that is given to us. Truth that is a reflection of God's own mind. So why do I believe that? Well, I wrote a dissertation on epistemology. And if you want to talk to me about that, you can come see me in my office. But I also believe that because that's what Scripture teaches. If the postmodern, post-true relativizers are right, then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are wrong. And the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter are liars. And Jesus is a fraud if the postmodern relativizers are right. Fundamentally, my intellectual commitment as a Christian, my mental apparatus as a follower of Jesus, requires that I reject wholesale the failed postmodern epistemology. I reject that hydra-headed monster that says inane things like, well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. One semester... In a rigorous freshman level philosophy course irons out those kinds of semantical and logical fallacies. But this isn't a philosophy class. This is a house of worship where we fall at the feet of the creator of the universe in adoration and in thanksgiving. And all that we need to do in this space is to listen to the words of our creator and redeemer, Jesus, who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And yes, the definite article is present in the Greek three times. Jesus knew what he was talking about. He is the truth. Our Savior to his Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Almighty God. Wonderful God, beautiful God, fearsome God, holy God, true God. True God sits at the top of the great totem pole of being. That's what we were talking about. And you know what comes next? We do. You do. People do. Humans made in the image of God do. The psalmist sings, you made humans ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. The psalmist, looking at his own humanity, cries out to God, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. And so, there we are. Number two, on the great totem pole of being, the only part of creation that's been made in the image of God. The only part of creation with reason. To know and to grasp and to appreciate and to obey and to love God. The only part of creation that's capable of worship. God made us to have a special relationship with himself. And so he made us very much like himself. Other parts of creation are good and beautiful and worthy of care. But other parts of creation cannot worship God or commune with God. That's our place And it's a very exalted place. Don't let anyone ever lie to you and suggest that humans are anything but the very pinnacle of creation. There are people who say that the world would be a better place without humans. You know, because we humans are making such a mess of things. 
At present, humans are causing a surge of extinctions. Entire species of plants and animals are, are going forever. In the 19th century, some species, like the carrier pigeon, were hunted to extinction just for entertainment. The last carrier pigeon, named Martha, died in the Cincinnati Zoo in 1914. Most of the other ones had been blasted out of the sky with shotguns. These days, it seems, extinction is driven by larger human forces, loss of habitat, introduction of exotic species, and climate change. Believe it or not, estimates say that between 100 and 200 species go extinct every day. That's an extraordinary number. Now keep in mind there are 8 billion or 8 million species on earth so it'll take a while to run through all of them but it's alarming to think that in a given year more than 30,000 species uniquely and intentionally created by almighty God will disappear forever. The current rate of extinction is between 1,000 and 10,000 times the so-called background rate, the rate at which extinctions would happen without humans. And so there are some individuals People who love animals and plants who go so far as to say that the world would be a better place if humans were gone. And while I appreciate their love of plant and animal life, they are wrong in their conclusion. And that's because terms like better and worse only make sense for God and things created in the image of God. These value terms, better and worse presuppose the presence of a rational observer. But the only rational observers on planet Earth are humans. Thus, eliminating the humans from the planet doesn't make the world better. It simply makes it neutral. It makes it neither good nor bad, which I would argue is actually worse than bad. Here's the best analogy I could come up with. I love art, and I enjoy going going to museums. But when a painting is displayed in a museum, the light falling on the surface of the painting and the humidity from the exhaled breath of the museum patrons and the vibrations caused by the passing crowds damages the painting. If you want to preserve the painting, you hide it away in a dark, climate-controlled, vibration-free chamber where no one can see it. But what sense would it make for an art lover to say, I love art so much that no one should be allowed to see it. What sense would it make for an art lover to say, the museum would be a better place if there were no people in it? Here's a more down-home example. My wife has inherited some nice old china, and we enjoy using it. If you come to our house for dinner, you probably won't be eating off the Ikea plates. You'll most likely get a Spode or a Hutchenreuter. And you know what happens when you use the old china. You know what happens when you take that old china out of the cupboard and you serve food on it. Some of it breaks. What sense would it make for a china lover to say, I love china so much that no one should be allowed to use it. What sense would it make for a china lover to say, the world of china would be a better place if there were no people in it. Animal and plant species on this planet are beautiful and wondrous and they should be preserved and protected. And God created us humans with our faculties of judgment and reason to admire, appreciate, and care for those species. We humans are what give value 
and meaning to the other creatures on earth. Just as Adam in the garden gave names to all of the animals, remove the humans from the scene, and you also remove the only creature who admires the beauty of God's creation, the only creature who praises God because of his creation, the only creature who can name and give value and meaning to the parts of God's creation. While it is true that people are making a mess of things and need to clean up their act, it is not true that the world would be a better place without us. Without us, the world would be soulless and sightless. It would be like a treasure trove of art or china locked away in a lightless vault and buried, never to be seen again. We humans are way up near the top of the totem pole of being just one step below God. Humans can admire and appreciate and care for God's creation. Humans can understand and worship God. Humans can be good and honorable and virtuous and brave and honest and merciful. Those are all capacities and abilities not given to other parts of creation, to the rocks and to the plants and to the animals, lovely as though they may be. Because of these capacities and abilities which are connected to the fact that we're made in the image of God, we are at the top of creation, just below God himself. But at the same time, in a perverse way, we humans are also way down at the bottom of the great totem pole of being. Because humans can also despise and plunder and destroy God's creation. Because humans also can hate God. And worship stupid stuff. Because humans also can be evil and crooked and vicious and cowardly and cruel. And they can do those things in a way that rocks and plants and animals can't. There are no evil animals. There are only evil people. Which means that humans are in some way at the top of the great totem pole of being. But also at the bottom. And the movement from the top to the bottom is what we call the fall. When sin showed up in this world, in our lives, we go from the top to the bottom. Humans created morally good and reasonable, became morally evil and irrational when sin entered the equation. We became worse than animals when we gave in to sin. And so the people who think that the world would be a better place without humans are in some sense right because sinful humans are more hateful than non-rational animals. But the view that the world would be a better place without humans only makes sense if there is no Redeemer. It only makes sense if there is no salvation. It only makes sense if there is no God because God the Redeemer grabs hold of filthy sinners in the pit of corruption and raises them up to where they belong, to where God wanted them to be from the very beginning, at the pinnacle of creation. Now I say all of this to remind you of how important you are, of how valuable each and every human being is, fearfully and wonderfully made, So that all of creation is below our feet, below us on the great totem pole of being. But I also say it to remind you of how far we humans have fallen. We humans who were created to tend 
the garden and to steward God's creation for God's glory have instead exploited it and destroyed it with evil hearts and perverse reason. Why is that important? Because when Paul announces, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, I want you to see just how big this salvation is. We have fallen from the top of the great totem pole of being to the very bottom. And our salvation, our restoration takes us from the bottom and raises us back up to the top, right below God Himself. All human sin has its root in a rebellion against God's intention for us and God's design for creation. And both Scripture and our ordinary human experience teaches us that sin holds us in its grasp like chains on a slave. Anyone who has the least bit of personal honesty knows the struggle that we all have with sin. Because so often we know the right thing to do. We sometimes even want to do the right thing. But we choose the evil over the good because our sin nature has us in its thrall. We are enthralled by sin. And God's salvation sets us free. Not so that we can do as we please, but but so that we can do what it is that God made us for. We are set free to operate as God designed us so that we can live the way God intended back when he put us at the top of the great totem pole of being. When the history of this world is over, when God settles all of the accounts and he makes the new heaven and the new earth and we find our place in the new Jerusalem, when that day comes, it will be as if God has reestablished the Garden of Eden and has returned us to a state of created perfection. That's the promise of our salvation, and I don't want us to ever lose sight of that goal. But in another way, the new creation will actually be better than the first creation. The new Jerusalem is going to be better than the Garden of Eden, and here's why. First, there's going to be no temptation to sin. There will be no possibility of getting off the rails. We're going to have the knowledge of the of good and evil, but we will always choose the good. Our appetites will always be for what is right and good and true and beautiful and godly. We will delight constantly in doing the good and we'll keep on doing it. Second, the tree of life will be there with us in the new Jerusalem and we're going to eat it and just keep on living. The reformers speculated that the fruit of the tree of life will be a sacrament in the New Jerusalem. The way the Lord's Supper is a sacrament on this side of glory in the New Jerusalem, we will come back to the tree of life again and again, just as we come back to the Lord's table again and again, to be refreshed and to be nourished. And third, our status in the New Jerusalem Indeed, our status beginning here on earth as soon as we are found in Christ is that we are not just one of God's creatures or even God's premier and preeminent creature. If we are in Christ, our status is that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. Now, we love the things that we make. We love the things that we create. I'm sure God loves and delights in every single thing that he's ever made. But we love our children even more. God loves 
this world. But he loves his children even more. Paul tells us that this salvation that God offers us by faith in Jesus Christ lifts us from the very bottom to the tippy top. God's salvation pulls us out of the miry clay of slavery to sin and places us right next to the heart of God himself. I love the image that we get in the Gospels of the Apostle John, whom Scripture calls the Apostle whom Jesus loved, leaning against the breast of Jesus. I love the image that we get in the Gospels of Jesus taking up the children in his arms and laying his hands on them to bless them. That's what's offered to us in the Gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It isn't that we've just been given a clear record and restored to our previous condition. Gosh, if that were true, we'd pretty quickly fall back into our old ways. Instead, what Paul tells us is that when we go from being slaves to a force entirely alien to life, hostile to life, hostile to God, we are lifted up into the arms of God as His own sons and daughters. It is a remarkable reversal of fortunes. It is an unbelievable turn of events. But you know what? That's not the end of the story. It gets even better. Because when we are adopted as sons and daughters of God, guess who is our brother? Yeah. Jesus. Jesus is our brother. He's our sibling. We're a member of his family. Oh, he's got a special place in that family. He's the brother who, like Joseph, who went down into Egypt to bring salvation to his other siblings. He has a special place in the household, but make no mistake about it, Jesus is our brother. It takes your breath away if you have ears to hear. But that's not all. There's more. Paul also tells us that we are joint heirs with brother Jesus. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ is what Paul says. Well, what does that mean? It means that everything that belongs to Jesus by virtue of his status as the son of God, that all of that belongs to us. When we are united to Christ in faith, all that belongs to Christ also belongs to us. I don't know what you do with that. I don't know how your mind can grasp that. I think the only thing you can do is stand in wonder and worship God for His surpassing greatness and mercy. And so, now after this long and winding sermon, let me invite you this morning to the Lord's Supper because if we are in Christ, we are no longer slaves. If we are in Christ, we are no longer excluded from the household. If we are in Christ, we are sons and daughters. Welcome to the table. Joint heirs with our host, who is Jesus Christ himself. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, you are our maker and you are our redeemer. This morning as we meditate on your word, Lord, may we see the truths of these mysteries. And Lord, as we come to your table this morning, may we also see the truth of the mystery of this sacrament. May we be fed and nourished by this sacrament. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.